did have a uh, wonderful time getting to meet um, more than a few of you and learn about your heart for Columbus and mission in the area. I've been very encouraged um, by that. Um, I'd like to share with you this morning from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and a message I have titled, The Excellencies of Christ. Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for the goodness of your word. Father, I pray um, that this morning, uh, many of us have come in perhaps uh, parched and, and hungry, and nothing is satisfying. And I would pray that this morning we would find the living water of your son and the bread of your word all satisfying, more than sufficient. Be real to us this morning, Father, as we know you are. For the glory of your Son, and by his authority, I pray, amen. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives um, sort of a, an explanation via parables, as he is wont to do, of the kingdom of God. And in Matthew 13, we find these two, they're just one or two line each, complementary parables about the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure in a field. Whether he was looking for treasure, we don't know, but it, he stumbled across treasure, apparently. And when he uncovered the treasure and discovered it, he was so struck with its, its value, how much of a treasure it was, that he covered it up so no one else would get it, and went and sold everything he had so he could buy the field to have the treasure. In the very next little parable, Jesus says there was a man who was looking for treasure. He was looking for pearls. He was a, a merchant. And he found this one pearl of great price. And it was so valuable, he was willing to sell everything he had in order to get this treasure. Two different men, one perhaps looking for treasure and one not looking for treasure, maybe. But both had discovered that the treasure was worth everything. It was of surpassing value. And Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God is like. When you really discover the preciousness and the value of Jesus and his kingdom, you're willing to give everything for it. But until you have seen the value and the treasure for what it is, you're not willing to give everything for it. If we were to take a day of your life, just a random day, and put it under the microscope. How precious, how valuable would observers think Jesus Christ is to you? Let's be generous. Let's say, let's take a random week out of your life, not a day. A week. Put it under observation. How valuable, given the evidence in that week, would we find Jesus is to you? This is a question that scares me. But my aim this morning is not to cajole you into treasuring Jesus. It's not to crack the whip into making you treasure Jesus or even to convince you to treasure Jesus. I don't believe that that is even the aim of Scripture, the primary aim of God's revelation to us. I believe it is to uphold and proclaim Jesus Christ as precious and valuable. And so that's what I would like to do this morning with you. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, Paul describes the gospel and the person, Jesus, that we receive in the gospel as immeasurable riches. In Ephesians 3, 8, he says unsearchable riches. In Philippians 4, 17, he says riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And in Colossians 1, 27, the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ. What we see throughout the New Testament and in the foreshadows of the Old Testament is a picture of the good news that is big and multifaceted and rich and complex precisely because Jesus Christ is big and multifaceted and rich and complex. I'd like to give you a glimpse via the author of Hebrews this morning in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Well, let's begin with the primary concept that the author of Hebrews is trying to get across to us, this, the, the glory of God. It's a very common phrase. We talk about doing things to the glory of God. Perhaps from the um, tradition of the Protestant Reformation, you've heard the phrase soli deo glory, gloria, to God alone be the glory. But has it just become sort of a cliche or just a repeated phrase for us? Do we understand what the glory of God is? The word glory has its root in weightiness, big, bigness, expansiveness. And so God's glory is seen as the summation of all of his attributes and his nature, all that he is encapsulated in the weightiness of who he is, which would lead C.S. Lewis, a famous author, to title one of his classic works, The Weight of Glory. This is a big, weighty thing. All that God is on the scales, nothing can balance that out. There is nothing weightier than the glory of God. And here we learn in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus Christ is the radiance of that glory. The radiance of the weightiness of God. We see a vivid picture of this in the book of Revelation where we learn that in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't need a sun because Jesus Christ himself will be the sun, the illumination of the new heavens and the new earth. That's staggering that he himself is the light. We're told he's the light of the world. Someday he will be the light of all eternity, literally, physically. The vision we receive for God's end game in Habakkuk is that the knowledge of God's glory would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. This is the vision that we get of the radiance of God's glory when Jesus Christ finally stands in the consummated kingdom and the entire universe is basking in God's glory because his light is infinite. Wonderful. Look how radiant that is. And like the sun, S-U-N, if Jesus Christ is not in the center of the universe of our lives, things fall out of balance. What happens if we were to kick the sun out of the center of our solar system? The place would fall apart. Things would die. It would be haywire. It would be chaos. Similarly, 
If Jesus Christ is not at the center of the universe, there is no life. It is chaos, disorder. No balance can be found. And like the sun, S-U-N, the beams of the radiance of Jesus Christ are too numerable to count. Can you go out and count the sunbeams? No. But let's try. We see, or I see, some of these beams of radiance of Jesus Christ in the vocations of Christ. For instance, we learn in the scriptures that he is our advocate, that he is the author and the perfecter of our faith, that he is the bridegroom, that he is the deliverer, the redeemer, the kinsman redeemer, the good shepherd, the great high priest, the Messiah, the horn of salvation, the great physician, the son of man, the mediator, the second Adam, the resurrected Lord. All of these just beams of radiance that go on for eternity. We see some of these beams of radiance in just the atoning work that he did upon the cross and out of the tomb. We learn that he is the lamb of God. We learn that he is the ransom, the payment. He is the propitiation. He is our righteousness. Each one of these could preach for miles and miles and years and years, and yet all of them find their intersection in the blazing brilliance of who Jesus is. We see the beams of radiance of God's glory in the symbols of Christ. He is the bread of life. He is the chief cornerstone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the gate or the door. He is the rock. He is the vine. He is the morning star. He is the light of the world. Again, we could go on and on and on. One of my favorite authors is a New Englander, Jonathan Edwards. He's not with us anymore. But his writing is very instrumental in the first great awakening, the mighty work of God in the Northeast. Edwards says that in Jesus Christ, we find an admirable conjunction of diverse excellencies. It's a big fancy way of saying that in Jesus Christ, we find these juxtaposed or complementary attributes. Let me give you an example, and you'll see what he means by a conjunction of diverse excellencies. So in Jesus, we have a shepherd who is a sheep. He's the Lamb of God, but also the Good Shepherd. Isn't that interesting? He is the judge, and yet he also stands in the condemned person's place. See how that works? He is the great high priest, and yet he is also the sacrifice. What priest is the sacrifice? Priests make sacrifices. They don't become the sacrifice, but Jesus did. What kind of king would also be a servant? What kind of lamb would also be a lion? Do you see how in Jesus is the intersection of infinite wonderfulnesses? It's so beautiful. It's so radiant. John in his gospel says, if everything were written down that Jesus said and did, just in his earthly ministry, the books couldn't contain it. Is it any wonder then that we will be basking in his radiance for all eternity? Because it will take all eternity to contain all that he has said and done. And by the way, the only way this won't bowl you over is if you think you're hot stuff. But you're not hot stuff. (laughs) 
And I'm not hot stuff. But Jesus is. Jesus is. The author of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature, which is to say he is the reflection. It's sort of a, a complementary phrase to him being the radiance of the glory of God. He is a reflection. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. This is a shorthand way of saying all that God wants us to know about himself, he reveals through the second person of the Godhead, his son, Jesus Christ. He says, this is what I want you to know about me. And we see these glimpses, these revelations of the fullness of God's attributes and nature just in Jesus. Who can walk on water? Who can say, be still to a storm and it stops? Only God. We see the sovereignty. We see the majesty. We see the might of God in the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. We even see, this is something that I have been trying to wrap my brain around in the last couple of months, the omnipresence of God, one of the classical attributes, the omnipresence of God in the incarnate Jesus. So when God became man in Jesus, he self-limited, he gave up um, the right to some of his attributes to become man and walk and bleed like we do. But when he was resurrected and glorified and ascended, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. After um, a church service a few weeks ago, a friend of mine came up and, and just said, isn't it neat or curious or interesting, I forget the exact word, but isn't it neat that now that Jesus is glorified and, and, and in heaven, he has forever given up um, his access to omnipresence. He is forever limited to the incarnate glorified body. And at first I was... I couldn't wrap my brain around that. It didn't sit right with me, but I just said, yeah, yeah, that's kind of that's neat. But then I wanted to chew on it and, and, and look it up. And what, what, what I find in the scriptures is that Jesus Christ is there, his, glor- his glorified self is there, but it also says that he's here, he's in, he's in me. And so if he's incarnate, but he's also in me and he's there, See, and now my brain starts hurting, (laughs) which means I think I'm onto something. (laughs) When you're pondering the nature of God, you're onto something when your brain starts hurting. I I can't wrap my mind around that. I don't understand that. But I I believe the incarnate Christ, the glorified Christ, is omnipresent because he's God. We also see the fullness of who God is in Jesus' earthly ministry. We all love the love of God. Everyone loves the love of God. And we see this as Jesus Christ forgives sinners and, and welcomes the children to him. But we also see the justice of God and the wrath of God in Jesus. He's driving the money changers out of the temple with a whip. With a whip. He's holding a whip. nobody talks about that and he's pronouncing woes over the Pharisees and he's cursing the fig tree and if you go all the way to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation who is coming on a white horse shooting swords out of his mouth destroying the unrepentant workers of wickedness it's Jesus it's Jesus And it can't be a case of mistaken identity because it says his name is tattooed on his leg. (laughs) Who's that? It's Jesus. 
It doesn't look like Jesus, but look at his name tag. It's Jesus. The fullness of God, the weightiness of God. Isn't the wrath of God a heavy thing? Let's not shortchange it. The wrath of God is there in the person, Jesus Christ. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He also upholds the universe by the word of his power. In John chapter 1, we learn, of course, that all that was created, Jesus had a hand in that. He was present in the beginning when the world was created because he is eternally God himself, the second person of the Trinity. And we know from Genesis that the world was created through words. That because God is powerful, he simply said, let there be light, and light shows up. He speaks and things happen. Classic author G.K. Chesterton is reflecting upon the childlike nature or the the childlike pleasure-taking in repetition that he supposes God has. Let me set this up. If you have children or grandchildren and, and, or you, know, you, you babysit children, you're familiar with this phrase, do it again, do it again. This, I remember this most vividly as we're playing horsey, horsey, go to town. Do it again, do it again. And eventually your legs cramped up and you're numb and you're just, do it again and you can't feel anything anymore. Do it again, do it again. They, they, they don't get tired of it. And Chesterton figures, perhaps God has that same childlike taking in pleasure so that every day, like the earth isn't on autopilot, but every morning he says to the sun, do it again. And to the flowers and the trees and the wind and the planets spinning in their orbits, do it again, do it again, do it again. And perhaps this is what Jesus Christ is doing, upholding the universe by the word of his power. He simply says, Stay, and it stays. Sun rise, and it rises. Balance be held, and there is balance. He is sustaining creation because he is Lord over creation. And by the way, if this is true, if Christ sustains the universe by his powerful word, it changes everything. Or it ought to change everything. It means we should get rid of this sort of silly, superstitious dualism where we have Satan fighting God, and we don't know who's going to win, and God's relying on us. This came out in some of the popular spiritual warfare titles in the 80s. It was in some of the popular Christian music. It's like Jesus is boxing Satan, and if you don't pray hard enough, Jesus will lose What a pathetic Jesus that would be. Like, are you familiar with the Peter Pan stories? Tinkerbell, she dies and you have to clap and she comes back to life. Like Jesus is Tinkerbell. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. What a wonder then that he wants us. If he controls the universe, if he sustains the universe, if he upholds the universe by his powerful word, he doesn't need our help. He doesn't. If this is true, it means we don't have to worry anymore about the end of the world. He's got it. He's got it. 
It means repenting of the arrogance of thinking that this world is what we make of it. We are not in control. He is. After making purification for sins is our next phrase. How excellent is Christ? Well, if you look at the old covenant temple system, how sins were atoned for, how purification was made, what you see is an endless line of carnage, a trail of blood running out of the temple, a conveyor belt of sacrifices. You needed a spotless lamb, but even that, the next day, you needed another one, and then another one, and then another one, and another one. Why are God's mercies new every morning? Because so are your sins. So are my sins. I get up ready to sin. This is my day. This is what I'm going to do with my day. God's got it covered. And under the old system, they had a vivid reminder constantly, constantly, constantly. Death after death, sacrifice after sacrifice. But one of the themes that the author of Hebrews develops later on, one of the things he really wants to make clear is this phrase that's one of my favorite phrases in the Bible. When Christ offered himself as the sacrifice, he did it once for all. Once for all. There's no need to offer any more sacrifices. Not only is he the spotless lamb, but if it took spotless lambs and you needed an endless supply of them until the new covenant and Christ arrives, then he must not just be perfect, he must be super perfect. More than perfect. Uber spotless. That's what kind of sacrificial lamb Jesus is. And to think that he would wield this perfection for our purification. You see, now... I hope you're feeling the weight a little bit now, that weight of glory. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why is he seated? Because the job is done. That's what you do when the work is done. You sit down. He cries, it is finished from the cross. He has accomplished atonement. He has purchased those who belong to God, back to God. He has conquered death and sin, and the work is done, so he sits down. It's paid in full. There is nothing left to contribute to the work. Stop trying. Many of us live our Christian lives as if Jesus' atoning work uh, was a down payment, and now we're on some kind of installment plan, as if we can contribute to our salvation through our religious effort. It doesn't work. If you lived for a million years, you couldn't pay it off. And it's already paid. It's already paid. Verse 4, we read, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. What I learned from this is that Jesus surpasses all supernatural entities, spiritual powers, the buck stops at Jesus. Do you remember the day, and they're still sort of popular now, but there was a time where angels were just really popular. There's this cottage industry, angel books and angel movies and angel television shows, and they're talking about angels on Oprah, and they're talking about angels on Dr. Phil and Good Morning America, and 
Everyone's got figurines of angels, and just angels, angels, angels. Why do you think that was? We, we like that kind of vague spirituality. We like that. But I think it's because angels serve us, at least in that context. They're watching over us. They're taking care of us. They're doing our bidding. We can talk to them. They reveal things to us. Suddenly, we're at the center of our spirituality. And we liked angels because angels didn't say to us, you're a sinner and you need salvation. But Jesus is above angels. He commands angels. He is superior to angels. What do you call the man who is seated, who says things that then get done? The boss. That's the boss. And that's who Jesus is, the boss. In fact, he makes it very clear in Matthew 10, 33, because he is the watershed, because he is the fork in the road, he says, if you deny me, I will deny you. Do all roads lead to the same place? Yes, the judgment seat of Christ. And there they fork. What name has he inherited then? He has inherited the name above all names. He has inherited the name full of names. For instance, he is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is the Almighty. He is the faithful and true. He is the Alpha and Omega. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the bright and morning star. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Lion of Judah. He is Rabbi, Teacher. He is God's only begotten Son. He is the Son of David. He is the Ancient of Days. He is the Word of God. He is the Great I Am. He's Jesus, the Lord. His name demands response. There is no other name given by which we may be saved but the name of Jesus. It's, it's my conviction, it's my contention that we don't see this weight of glory. We won't see this big, radiant Jesus, mighty to save, until we're at the bottom. Until we have experienced an utter brokenness that provides such clarity that all the shiny idols don't work anymore, all the religious exercises aren't cutting it, and suddenly, there alone, in the wilderness, stands the mighty God-man, Jesus Christ. This is what happened to me. I'd like to share my story with you. I grew up in the church, was raised in the church. When I was about five years old, according to the tradition of our denomination, I walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, and was baptized. Then on, I went to Sunday school, went to church every week. But when I got to be about 12 years old, I began to wonder, did I really understand what I did when I was five years old? See, I grew up in a church where the gospel was for lost people and not for Christians. And so I believed I had graduated from it. And when I was about 12, I was a timid, fearful, angst-filled believer. But I didn't know if I was a believer or not. And so my mother counseled me to say the prayer again. So I did. And I was baptized again. And then I graduated from the gospel again. 
And I did my hardest, I did my darndest to prove myself as a good Christian young man. I grew up in youth group. I was considered one of the key kids in the student ministry. When our youth pastor left, when I was a junior in high school, before our new youth pastor came, I was leading the youth services on Wednesday night as a student myself. On the outside, I looked great. On the inside, I was a prideful, self-centered mess. And I was cultivating and developing secret sin, which I then carried into my marriage. In 1996, Becky and I were married. She had saved herself for the man of God. I was her first boyfriend. I was her first kiss. She had asked God, send me the man that you want, and I will wait until he comes. And she believed God said, Jared. You can imagine her, her hurt and her confusion and her doubt when I began day after day for a period of eight to ten years crushing her heart with my selfishness and my pride, I began to engage in things like pornography. I was acting out of my insecurity. I was trying to break into the writing field and I couldn't get published, so I felt like a failure according to my, my talents. I believed I was called into ministry, but God was keeping me out of ministry during this time, and I didn't understand why. It was because I wasn't qualified for ministry. I was a stay-at-home dad to our two little girls, and while I loved being their daddy, it certainly messed with my sense of manhood and masculinity to have my wife be the breadwinner while I stayed home and couldn't get paid according to any of my gifts or talents. It came to a head when I realized I had lost my wife's heart. She just didn't love me anymore. Depression sat in. I thought, maybe I should just check out of the universe myself. Everything I touch turns to dirt. I've made everyone's life unhappy. No one approves of me except for those who don't know the real me. So the people who like me, like me based on this outward projection that I have put out. And folks, that's when, that's when the gospel was like smelling salts for me. I put it this way most often. God won't be your only hope until he's your only hope. Have you found that to be true? See, as long as I had other options, as long as I could keep apologizing to my wife and have her forgive me, I just, you know, I'd, I'd manage my sin, I would hide my sin, but I would go right back to it because I felt like it was safe to do so. But once everything had been knocked out, my legs knocked out from under me, and I was at the bottom of the barrel, that's when I was hungry for the bread of the word, began to pour myself into the scriptures, began to see what God would say about me. And there was a light bulb moment for me, the utter breaking point. I was sleeping in our guest bedroom at the time and spending most evenings just praying those prayers where you don't have words. You know, sometimes it's just like one word over and over again, please, 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 something like that. And I was face down on our guest bedroom floor, wetting the carpet with my tears, and I could hear, not audibly, but these specific words to my heart, the Holy Spirit saying to me, I approve of you. What? I approve of you? 
It's exactly what I needed to hear. And I knew, I knew God wasn't saying, I approve of everything that you've done. I approve of the mess you've made of your life. I approve of the hurt and the shame that you have poured on your wife. I knew that's not what he meant. I knew what he meant was, because of Jesus Christ, I approve of you. That changed everything. Not my circumstances. <laughs> I couldn't get up and go to Becky and say, hey, good news, God approves of me. <laughs> It was, in her mind, way too late. And part of being repentant, really repentant, and some of you, I think, should hear this, perhaps, because you're dealing with someone who's having trouble forgiving you. Part of repentance is embracing the consequences of your sin and not trying to manipulate or leverage based on spirituality or anything else the person who's having trouble that you have hurt into forgiving you be really repentant. I spent about a year of repentance. My sin, that, that habitual, constant sin was behind me. I had no des the desire was gone. Thomas Watson says, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And I had reached the bitterness of my sin and found Christ so sweet. Once I had tasted and seen that the Lord is good, he ruined me for all other tastes all other offerings. My wife didn't trust me, but I spent a year walking in repentance, loving her despite her not really loving me back. She let me live in the house. This came to a head about a year later, and she eventually just said to me, I want you out of the house. I could have easily said, but haven't you seen how I am? Instead, what I said was, can you give me through the weekend? And that practically, that was so I could call my parents and see if you know, I had money, if I had to get an apartment. And I said, just give me till Monday, and if you want me out, I'll be gone. See, at that point, I had learned that repentance was the right thing to do, not the leverage thing to do. So if she never wanted me back, I had to be okay with that. What I had come to the point of realizing is like Job when he's praying to God and says, though you slay me, yet will I trust you? I had to get to the point of saying, God, I, I have tasted and seen that you are good, and if I never get my marriage back, I, I'm going to trust you. Yet will I trust you. You give, you take away. I, I've created this mess. It's only right that I not have this restored back to me. So if it's over, if it's done, somehow I'm going to be okay. Becky gave me that weekend, but I didn't need it because on Friday she had gone to work, went to lunch with some friends. She called me at the end of lunch and said, I don't want you to leave. I don't want you to move out. It's a miracle. So she had had her own moment of gospel wakefulness closer to that time. I'm not a um, prosperity gospel thinker. Like I don't think God was wanting me to get to the point of releasing before he would give it back, like it was some kind of, I was pulling a lever or pushing a button to get from God what I wanted. It might not have worked out that way, but he was good and gracious enough then to say, you know, I've called you into ministry and I've kept you out because you weren't qualified, but, you know, pastors need wives and you need her. It's not good for you to be alone. And he began to restore things back to us, he began to knit our hearts together after 15 years of marriage, that was about five years ago, we're, of course, now in the best place we've ever been, better than we've ever been. 
going to get books published. I've got a job. I could bring my wife home, give her the desires of her heart to stay home with her children. God is sweet and he is gracious. And you know what? If I had not received any of that, he still would be. He still would be because he was when I wanted to kill myself. He was sweet and gracious. I saw this mighty Jesus standing over me in my most vulnerable, broken moment saying, I want you. I approve of you. I love you. I died for you. It's the, it's, it's cliche to say, but it's life changing or ought to be. We must see Jesus in this way. This is what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be an option. Is that what it says? No, that he might be preeminent. John Calvin says to us, Christ is, as it were, a fountain open to us from which we may draw what otherwise would lie unprofitably hidden in that deep and secret spring. I don't know about you, but many times my heart gets parched. And what I have found of the living water of Jesus Christ and his gospel is that the more it satisfies thirst, the more it provokes thirst for that which it supplies. The more you will press into Jesus, the more he will meet your needs and the more you will see your need for him and it's such a wonderful relationship to experience. You can't get enough because he's infinite and eternal. He is the radiance of God's glory. As I said before, I cannot convince you of these things. I can only proclaim them. And I hope that you will behold Jesus and believe. Will you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this time this morning. Thank you for these breaths that we can take. Help us to place our astonishment, not when bad things happen to us, but why more bad things don't happen to us. Help us to place our astonishment in what you have done for us. Help us to know that our future is as bright as what you have done in the past through your son for us. And therefore, our past with all of its brokenness, all of its sin, all of our regrets is as bright as the future when your son will return this kingdom and glory and wipe away every tear from our eyes. It's in his name that I pray.